0: Hello, everybody, and welcome back to New Books in Literary Studies, a podcast channel on the New Books Network. I'm Tong He, the host of the channel. Today, we will be talking to Dr. Erin Elizabeth Grail about her new book, Fiction, Philosophy, and the Idea of Conversation, published by Edinburgh University Press in 2023. Dr. Grail is an assistant professor of literature at the University of Texas at Dallas. She teaches and writes about modern and contemporary British and Anglophone literature, ordinary language philosophy, political philosophy, feminist theory, and critical new media studies. Her work has appeared or is forthcoming in contemporary literature, JML, Camera Obscura, Gandhi and Stanley Cavell and Aesthetic Experience. Erin, welcome to the show.
1: Thank you so much, Tong. It's really a pleasure to be talking with you today.
0: Well, I wonder if you could begin the interview by telling us a bit about yourself. Uh, and how did you come to write a book?
1: Sure. Well, um, as you as you just shared in the introduction, I'm an assistant professor of literature at UT Dallas, um, and I have been here since finishing my PhD in English, uh, which I did at uh, UC Berkeley. <clears throat> and uh, as is often the case with first books, which this is for me, uh, it did originate As a dissertation, um, although as is also often the case the book version is utterly transformed and somewhat unrecognizable in comparison to the dissertation. um, But many of the original questions are still there and still animate the the inquiry so um, so. I I think one thing that I'd like to say about how I came to write the book is to actually stretch all the way back to my undergraduate days. Um, The seeds of the project were really planted there. I uh, studied literature at uh, Duke University and I worked with Toro Moy, um, who listeners to this network may have heard her wonderful podcast discussion of her recent book, uh, Revolution of the Ordinary. Um, And if you haven't listened to that podcast, I recommend it. It's from last summer. Uh, and so when I was an undergraduate working with uh, with Toro Moy, uh, we were mainly working on feminist literature and Virginia Woolf and, and things like that. But I think she was beginning her own real study of uh, Wittgenstein and Stanley Cavell, uh, J.L. Austin, these philosophers associated with ordinary language philosophy. And so she would bring some of this material into our uh, classrooms. And uh, the thing that really connected with me at the time was um cavell's use of the figure of conversation to signify his idea of acknowledgement um, and so for cavell um the the idea of acknowledgement and maybe we'll talk more about this later um, but in brief, um, Cavell is interested in how ethical relationships are uh, sometimes challenged by philosophical skepticism, by a kind of anxiety about the fact that we cannot really know what's going on in, in the head of another person. And um, so Cavell's interested in how fear of the unknown inner life of another can drive all sorts of unethical bad behavior. And uh, his idea of acknowledgement is a way to kind of be released from this fear and decide that instead of trying to really know someone, we don't need that. Instead, we need to acknowledge them. We need to respond to them. Um, and so conversation for him becomes exemplary of what he calls articulate responsiveness or expressiveness. Um, and and if you think about just what we, what we do every day when we're talking to people, uh, we talk because we're different. We talk because we're separate, because there is a gap between us. um, And it's sort of through language that we create some kind of shared understanding and shared world. Um, And so uh, again, this, this idea really um, struck me when I was in my early twenties and, um, and the, the fact that for Cavell also this ideal of conversation um, signifies the, the um, aspirations not only for sort of interpersonal ethical relationships but moral development and marriage and just good partnership in general is about a kind of um, exchange in, in living language um, and so that was again I, I was so struck by that as an early 20 something and then as I started um, mm-hmm. um, mm-hmm. um working on my my phd at Berkeley um, i was increasingly just personally interested in politics and um, and i was involved in local campus politics union politics i was i was um, very active in my graduate student union um, and one of the other things i was noticing around this time was how prevalent the metaphor of conversation is when talking about politics and when talking about democracy um, describing democracy Democracy as a conversation among citizens. And so originally the dissertation was kind of um, launched by some questions about, you know, why is it that we use the same kind of metaphor at all of these different scales of life, the very intimate to the very public? And is this just kind of muddled fuzzy thinking that we use the same metaphor, or is there actually something there? Um, and uh, I guess one more thing I'd say is that it's always been um, part of why I, I was drawn to literary studies in the first place was that it has always been um, my conviction that great works of literature are, are essentially doing philosophy they're they're inquiring into these um these animating questions that drive our our intellectual lives and they're doing it in beautiful fun aesthetically interesting ways where the kind of aesthetic form is a key part of the inquiry and um so from the beginning my interest was in enlisting the sort of full toolkit of literature and philosophy the aesthetic form and the conceptual animation of these texts to just chase this question what is conversation why do we idealize it
0: right that's like it's all in there in the book actually and thank you for showing us this uh wonderful journey i guess probably we can delve it together and also like the conversation we're having now so uh i guess uh, my first question is like your introduction is entitled "Conversation as Word Making in Literature, Philosophy, and Criticism," and you already gave us a little bit of taste about this conversation. Can you le- elaborate the concept of conversation as it is presented in your book?
1: Absolutely. Um, so it is. It is. It takes me several hundred pages to fully elaborate. <laughs> so we'll see what I can do in a few <laughs> minutes. Sure, um, but uh, one one place to start is that uh, it, I am, as as I have kind of alluded to, I'm very influenced by ordinary language philosophy, and and especially by um, Stanley Cavell. Um, And the language that I use to describe what I'm doing in the book um, is that I say that I'm developing a conversational outlook Um, and I I borrow this language or I adopt this language from Cavell, who one of his big topics across his career is moral perfectionism. which he describes as an outlook or dimension of thought embodied and developed in a range of texts. And for Cavell, this framing of an outlook is an alternative to something like definition or theory. He doesn't want to construct a grand theory of moral perfectionism, um, uh, which uh, I'm sure I'll talk about perfectionism um, later in this conversation because conversation is key to it. Um, but here I want to say, I want to to. to draw attention to the actual metaphor of an outlook and what it allows so instead of trying to pin down a really strict theory of moral perfectionism or in my case conversation um, when you describe an outlook what you're doing is you're describing something like a foundation like a imagine an outlook overlooking a canyon or something it's it's just a place to stand a standpoint and then you can look in all sorts of different directions you can take in the horizon and I argue that this is what Cavell embodies in his own work. He sort of has a kind of foundational interest in moral life, ethical life, talk, language. Um, and then he, he finds texts that share that foundation with him, but, but help him look in different directions. And so I try to do something similar with conversation. I start with a, a foundation, which um, is what I call the conversational outlook. And then I, I enlist literary texts to kind of look in different different directions from that. So what is this outlook? Um, the outlook on conversation is informed by philosophical skepticism, uh, which I've mentioned. It is uh, the tradition of doubting our senses, right? The Cartesian doubt. Um, and uh, in Immanuel Kant's words, it's the scandal of human reason, uh, right? That we, we just don't know that our cognition is capable of giving us an accurate representation of the world. We don't know at its most extreme if the outer world even exists at all. Um, and uh, and I, I note that for the key philosophers and novelists that I draw together, um, they're really interested in how skepticism can become a scandal for ethical relationships and democratic relationships. And um, and, but the, the key discovery of uh, ordinary language philosophers like Cavell um, and the, the key um, political theorists that I work with, Hannah Arendt, is that the scandal is not Actually, skeptical doubt—that's not the thing that leads to the problems. The thing that leads to the problems is the fact that we catastrophize about this. So we panic and think, "Well, if we can't know, then uh, then how can we how can we respond ethically to other people? Or if I can't know what you're thinking, um, I need to kind of try to control you somehow so that you don't surprise me. Um, so it can lead to kind of bad ethical relationships, or you know, in the political realm, the phrase post-truth politics comes to mind, the sense that if we don't share conviction in our, um, in our perceptions of reality, then how can we, um, how can we try to build a common world politically? Um, why even try? And, um, and so for both Cavell and Arendt, uh, the thing to do, um, in the face of skepticism is talk <laughs> and make conversation. And um, and this is partly because it's only sort of through uh, language that we talkative animals can build a common world. Um, and so crucial to the conversational outlook, again, to sort of recap is it's informed by skepticism and it proposes that in the face of doubt, uh, what we do, what we should do is, is make conversation and what conversation allows is not the resolution of skepticism it doesn't it doesn't release us from doubt but it allows us an alternative to kind of stewing in doubt it allows us to build to build uh relationships in a common world and that's why that's that's part of what i mean when i call conversation world making um another thing that's crucial to the conversational outlook is that it requires that you all already share a language right um ordinary language philosophers often call this drawing on on some language from wittgenstein's late work a form of life um, and the idea is that in order to really learn a language you're not just learning vocabulary you're not memorizing a dictionary you're learning a whole way of being in the world and being attuned to the world cavell called this uh, our mutual att- attunements or agreements in our criteria. So in that language of attunement, you can already hear something sort of aesthetic, um, something about perception, something about how language, um, oh, sharing a language is sharing a set of attunements to what matters, to, to how you perceive. Um, so there's there's a kind of um, normativity uh, in the fact that we already share a language, but also in this aesthetic register, I think you can also see the chance for something more than norms, for the creation of something new, for uh, transforming our attunements through conversation. And so, and I find something similar in Arendt's work as well, this kind of toggling between the norm and the freedom, the Pre-existing conventions of a political world that allow you to speak with others in public. And for Arendt, it's through speech that you build the public realm. And, and she says, you know, the public world only exists where people gather together in the manner of speech and action. It doesn't pre-exist that moment. And it doesn't last after that moment. It's very fragile. It's very contingent. Um, but it also uh, is, is performatively generated every time you do talk to others and so uh, there is this this fragility this possibility this normativity this freedom and improvisation and play um and uh and so uh, to maybe um this will come out later in the conversation that we're having, um, but that's also something that I find in all of the novels that I draw together, that they're all interested in the tension between the kind of shared conventions and norms that allow us to talk at all, and the possibility that we might make worlds together that actually transform those norms, that that cycle back. It's a kind of iterative relay between between the language and our uses and the, the attunements that we can share um- and I, and I make the case that criticism is also world making in this sense that what the critic does is brings together, well, so there are sort of two registers on which um, criticism, especially literary criticism or aesthetic criticism is world making. One is, um, I think it's already always world making. Uh, if you think that, you know, you and I are both talking about uh, a novel by Virginia Woolf, um, you're, you're bringing to light what you you see in it, I'm bringing to light what I see it, and it's in our critical conversation that we come to produce a shared text, a uh, public version of, uh, of the novel. Um, which is not to say that that this is some kind of post-structuralist birth of the reader, the reader is making the text, because what we're making together is not the text, we're making our shared text, the public text, the, the text we have in common, uh, which is, is partly a crib on on a rent. Um, And so all criticism is about this, uh, but then I also propose that this notion that it's through conversation that you co-create a shared world and a shared object of study by by saying what you see um, and trying to test if you see what the other sees and if you can share a text. um, That same model also can be useful for thinking about how to include literary criticism in wider interdisciplinary conversations. Um, So you can think about the work of the literary critic, who's, again, trying to find out, you know, a great interpretation of To the Lighthouse. Um, Mm -hmm. Once you have that great interpretation of To the Lighthouse and you want to say this novel reveals something really profound about marriage, for example, then you can take the text. Uh, perspective on marriage and treat that as an angle on marriage that you might also uh, you might also um, shine additional lights on from you know sociology, from history, from Kierkegaard, from Cavell, from John Milton and and co-construct the critical conversation becomes an effort of drawing into view the idea of marriage that you can only see, once you look at marriage from the standpoint of to the lighthouse, as well as the standpoint of Soren Kierkegaard, as well as the standpoint of the history of marriage laws or whatever. And it's oh. that kind of shared vision of marriage that emerges. Um, and so, so sorry I've gone on a little bit. Um, yes. But this is this is the way that I see conversation as world-making in criticism. Um, what it makes is the shared object, but but sharing objects is how we share share the world right it's it's understanding the fact that we share objects seeing them in their full roundness being able to imagine that the text i see looks differently f- to you but we share it that i also can kind of see that we share something like a, a form of life
0: yes i feel like your description here fits perfectly with the co- the cover because uh, when you are just describing the uh, conversation outlook look like then I immediately uh, reminds of me of the book cover on your book so, I think that can I, love that, like and a I just history. quickly
1: say also the book cover is a painting called a conversation by Virginia Woolf's sister Vanessa Bell who was um you know a, a visual artist right. and member of the Bloomsbury group and all of that so um Woolf has always been really important to me um and uh, and it was such a pleasure to find that
0: I could feature work by her sister um on the cover of the book that's a great match yeah, yeah. So uh, I guess, since we talked about the uh, ethical uh, perspective, the ethical concerns, maybe I would just ask you about some of the arguments here in your chapter one. You read Jane Austen's Persuasion alongside Stanley Cavell's work on moral perfectionism. Uh, You touched upon it uh, a little bit. How does the novel engage with the themes of acknowledgement, perfectionism, and justice? as discussed by Cavell.
1: Yes. So um, I've sort of um, already offered a kind of quick uh, account of what acknowledgement is, right? It's articulate responsiveness, expressiveness. It's what we do instead of fixate on the impossibility of knowing the other. Um, and moral perfectionism in Cavell's work, he sometimes calls it Emersonian perfectionism uh, because he finds Ralph Waldo Emerson to be a great exemplar of this outlook Um, uh, but he also finds it in as I said, a whole range of texts um, uh, spanning from kind of Plato through Hollywood remarriage comedies um, and beyond Uh, but the core idea of, of moral perfectionism is that the way that uh, moral development can happen is through conversation with uh, an exemplary other. Mm. Um, Sometimes this other is a teacher. Sometimes this other is a a romantic partner, as in the remarriage comedies. Sometimes this other is a stranger, an enemy. Um, Somebody, uh, in, in any case, the key thing is that in a conversational encounter with this other, Uh, you or I, I'll I'll use the first person, I discover that um, there's something amiss with how I'm currently living my life. Um, And it's not exactly that the other is offering a model of how I prefer to live. I don't necessarily want to imitate the other, but there's something about the way that they are speaking and helping me see the world and myself that makes me very conscious that I'm sort of rooted in a position and in an identity that is not quite the best self that I want to be. And so Pavel says, and then I find I can turn in place. So again, we have this, this imagery of turning in place, um, and discover a further self. Um, and uh, and I link this to acknowledgement partly by saying, you know, it's, it's if acknowledgement is about offering the other articulate responsiveness, perfectionism is about offering the other's further self responsiveness from one's own further self. It's all about finding a voice to respond um, to the other. And in that process, changing transforming. Um, And so one of the the key things to note about this model of moral development is that it doesn't presuppose an ideal of what kind of person anybody should be. Um, Cavell calls those debased perfectionisms. If if I tell you, you should, you know, what would Jesus do, for example, is a version of a kind of potentially debased perfectionism, um, at least in comparison to what Cavell's describing, because the point is not what some other would do, it's what your best self would do. And again, you can only find that in conversation. Um so one of the really interesting to me uses of this idea of development of the further self through conversation that Cavell makes is um, he turns it into a critique of John Rawls's uh, ideal of justice um, and so Cavell uh, one of one of the things that he writes at one point is that um, Rawls presupposes too much uh, when he has his famous thought experiment where you go beyond behind the veil of ignorance and you imagine, you know, what are the principles I would agree to if I don't know who I would be in the world? Um, That's sort of the Rawlsian thought experiment. And from there you can construct the ideal society. And Cavell says, well, we don't need that. What we need is, is to know who we currently are, who we, what our current relationship is to justice or injustice and what the further self would be in that relation. And so he uses the phrase conversation of justice to kind of scale this from just the individual moral development to think about how democracy itself might be involved in something like a larger conversation of justice where, again, individuals, and collectives need to take stock through encounters with others, with strangers, maybe with exiles from their current, um, from their current polity in order to kind of find the better version of, of the society. So that's the preamble. Um, my discovery with Jane Austen was really kind of stunning. Um, when I was rereading Persuasion, her final, the final novel, um, that was completed, uh, by Austen. Um, in one sense, this is a novel that you could read as a kind of remarriage plot. Uh, the, the, um, which is a key genre for Cavell. Um, So the primary couple doesn't need to get together. They need to get back together. Time has lapsed. They've both gotten more mature. And for Cavell, the remarriage plot is partly how, in a society where there's no alternative to everybody getting married. um, It's through these kind of stage separations and reunions that you can actually ratify marriage um, as something that is chosen and, and can be chosen according to the right ethical reasons, et cetera. Um, So at one level, this is a novel that is partly about that, partly about finding your way back to someone and in the process sort of ratifying the relationship as being based on, on all of the right principles, including acknowledgement and potential moral development. Um, but I'm really interested in a second reunion plot in the novel, which is between the protagonist, Anne Elliot and uh, Mrs. Smith, who was her friend when uh, she was much younger and is now a destitute widow. And uh, so Anne reunites with this woman late in the novel, in the second half of the novel, Mrs. Smith is poor. And Mrs. Smith tells Anne this story about how she and a nurse, a friend of hers, um, basically are scamming the wealthy women of Bath. um, And they're sort of preying on them when they're convalescing from illness and sort of selling them trinkets that Mrs. Smith has made and then, you know, using the proceeds um, actually in an interesting kind of redistributive manner. They're, They're giving away some of the money to very poor families in Bath. So there's this moment where Mrs. Smith tells Anne this story. And Anne can't take it in she um, so here we have I argue it's a potential perfectionist conversation she's being talked to by someone who represents a different standpoint in society a much lower class position um, and it's informed by resentment it's informed by maybe a kind of willingness to uh, to fudge the moral laws that Anne holds dear um, but also it's kind of if, if Anne were to really be responsive in this moment. Maybe she would call into question these moral laws and think, why why should it not be okay uh, in an unjust, unequal society for the kind of destitute widow to try to get some money from these frivolous society women um, who who uh, have more money than they know what to do with. Um, so that's sort of one potential response we could imagine Anne having, or we could imagine Anne just even just saying like, oh my goodness, I don't even know what to make of the story you're telling me. But instead, Anne shuts, it, shuts down. Down her own attunement to the conversation by pretending that what she's heard is a. Story of fortitude and um, and kind of moral development. She kind of imagines, well, the nurse, uh, the the nurse must see these great scenes of strength and resignation and and kind of moral courage when she's in the sick room, and and so Anne basically um, just completely fails to respond to what she's being told. And then she uses the analogy of reading, and she says uh, you can read. Uh, she pretends that the the nurse is reading the scene of the sick room and deriving kind of moral uh, principles of strength and courage in the face of illness uh, from the text of the sick bed. Um, so not only is she failing to respond to the actual story of 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 scamming that she's hearing, she's also failing to respond because she is um, doubling down on a certain kind of vision of reading as the foundation of moral development, which is something that the nurse probably doesn't do, that is a very class-specific way of thinking about about virtue. And it resonates with other parts of the novel where Anne is sort of preachy about uh, the moral benefit of literature. And so what I suggest is that not only is this a failed perfectionist conversation, but it fails because and instead of allowing her further self to respond uh, to her old friend, she doubles down on her readerly self, this moralistic self uh, that associates reading with uh, a very strict moralism. And so part of what I suggest in this chapter is that um, it's never really resolved. There's there's kind of tidy conclusion to this weird moment in the novel and so I suggest that that is actually uh, it allows persuasion to um, appeal to the further self of its own reader by making us think about how is it that our our assumptions about reading might uh, at times foreclose our capacity to respond to people who don't read for example or who aren't a part of of the class milieu that, uh, and the kind of moral milieu that prioritizes um, fiction and reading and and privacy and all of the the associations with um, a literary culture. And so there are various also ways that that can connect to liberalism, the rise of the novel and and things like that that I also explore in the chapter. But but so that's where I'm really interested not only in how we can find in persuasion, a kind of model of failed perfectionist conversation in the seen but the novel itself serves as an invitation into perfectionist conversation with the reader
0: yes kind of like proposing a standpoint for us to look together
1: exactly exactly that's 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 perfect
0: so uh Thank you for the explanation there. I guess since we also talk about uh, the ethical concerns here, um, the next chapter on uh, um, George Meredith, The Egoist, uh, I wonder how does the novel challenge and affirm the ideas of ordinary language philosophers, like J.L. Austin, you just mentioned that, previously regarding performative language.
1: Yes, so uh, so George Meredith's The Egoist, I think it's kind of gone out of fashion um in in uh, literary studies, but um if people would read it again, uh, based on on anything that I could say, that would be that would be great. So this is a novel published toward the end of the 19th century. And it's very um, prescient in some senses, it kind of anticipates a lot of the core concerns that J.L. Austin would develop in uh, the set of lectures that ends up getting published as how to do things with words uh, from the mid 20th century. And so this is the the set of lectures that really um, offers a kind of clear articulation of the the principle of speech performativity or speech acts theory. um, The notion that there are some Sentences that, when uttered by uh, the the right people in the right context, um, actually achieve a change in the world. So they don't describe a state of affairs. They bring a state of affairs into being. And the kind of quintessential example for Austin, um, as well as for a lot of his, his commentators, um, sometimes in very funny ways, is uh, the marriage vow. Uh, when you say, I do, uh, you are not just reporting on a marriage, he says. You are indulging in. which is just, I, I think Austin is hilarious, um, which not everybody, my own students don't always agree, but I think Austin is hilarious. And that's one fun moment. Um, so, so performative speech is speech that kind of does what it says, but again, the right context needs to be in place. You need to be actually, you know, uh, in front of a registrar to get married by saying those words, for example, Um, So Austin, in How to Do Things with Words, he sketches out a whole set of different categories of performative utterances. And one of them is what he calls a commissive utterance, the kind of utterance that commits you um, to something. So a promise is is a quintessential commissive utterance. And something interesting about commissives is that... There are sort of two temporal moments that are important. There's the moment of making the promise where you are doing the promise by saying, I promise you all will show up at that time. I have done the act of promising, um, but I've also committed myself to a future act, which is showing up at that time. And so there's this time lag between the initial performative utterance, which again, does do something, it commits you, and the fulfillment or derailment of that promise um, And, uh, and the plot of the egoist is in pretty much entirely structured in that temporal lag between a woman named Clara agreeing to marry, consenting to marry. Consent is another commissive that is interesting in the novel, as well as in Austen's work. Um, and uh, the projected date of the wedding. And during this time lag, she discovers Willoughby, who she's engaged to, is a kind of monstrous egoist. Um, and uh, he's he's upset. He's a skeptic. Also, he a lot of his bad ethical behavior in the novel is driven by uh, skepticism, which which makes it very interesting for my project. He's obsessively afraid of the fact that he doesn't know what she actually thinks, Um and uh and so the novel's partly um an exploration of what ha- what might happen between the uh the initial promise and the fulfillment or derailment it's partly an exploration of sort of what gives language the power to commit us to these things um and more so than um than Austin and how to do things with words. It's really attuned to inequality and power relations um, as a key part of the picture. So um, you know Clara, this is Victorian England it's patriarchy. She uh, commits herself in a state of ignorance. She's a teenager basically and she doesn't really know this man. Um, and it's it's over the course of the novel that she discovers what he's like, uh, but she's already committed herself. Um, and uh, there are all sorts of ways that Willoughby gets away with a much kind of more casual relationship to the commitments of his language use um, than she seems willing to do. Um, so there's partly this this question about you know what is the relationship between a kind of power structure like patriarchy and the kind of fidelity to language that we demand from people, um, and how does a context like patriarchy also change the stakes for how different people in society use language and how they how they can enter into language with very different um, uh, information at the outset, um, and so all of this is at stake in the novel. Um, another thing that I think is really interesting about the novel is that I mentioned Willoughby as a skeptic. He uses performative speech because he's a skeptic, but simultaneously, uh, it is his understanding of performativity that kind of ratchets up his skepticism. So there's this, it's really fascinating dynamic in the novel where he endlessly is asking Clara to bind herself verbally to him over and over again with new kinds of promises. Um, and every time she does it though, she, she makes a kind of allusion to the fact that it's because language has certain Conventions that he should believe she will uphold her promise. So she's sort of alluding to the conventionality of language, which, on one hand, um, again, she's anticipating J.L. Austen, uh, or the the novel is anticipating J.L. Austen um, by by noting that it's because we share certain conventions that uh, our word is our bond um and so on one hand that should kind of reassure willoughby she's saying yes i've given my word and and my word is is all you can have um and so just you know be satisfied but by making drawing his attention to that she's also opening up the whole question of like what does she actually want? Is she only going to marry him because she's given him her word? And so, so it's, it it's kicks off this um, this anxious cycle for him. And I think that that's a really interesting feature of the novel this kind of um, paradoxical way that uh, that language um, is simultaneously the sort of best thing we have to guarantee that we understand each other, um, but for some people that can become a source of of intense um, anxiety and fear. And, um, and it's because of the kind of publicness of language, the fact that it's a, it's a shared set of public conventions. Um, and this is crucial to Cavell's work uh, and how he sort of builds on Austin is this sense that, you know, part of what you have to accept is uh, that your words really only have meaning because other people give them meaning. And uh, so we are caught in a kind of public, um, uh, mutual, um, realm uh in order to to continue to build worlds with language um so that's the sort of second thing so it adds it adds interest in power and gender relations it adds interest in the kind of pathos um and then a third thing that the novel does that i think is really fascinating is um it clara uh, we, well, one of the things that we learn in the novel is that Willoughby had been jilted by a previous woman that he was engaged to. And so we know all along, Claire could just run away, right? She could just abandon, uh, you break her word, but she won't. And so one of the questions that I think the novel invites us to ask is why won't she abandon her promise, even though she knows there's no real ethical reason that she should uphold it? And so here I draw on parts of of Cavell's work where he explores how, again, participation in a language, in the publicness of language, involves us in a set of kind of compromises that we have to consent to if we're to have a voice at all in that society. And there might come times, Cavell notes, when we're willing to give up our voice in a particular society because it the compromises are too great. But if we if we break our word, for instance, if we kind of blow up our own relationship to that language, um, we lose also a capacity to keep participating in that in that world. And so I I suggest that um, there are all sorts of of signs in the novel that that's partly what's at stake for Clara is she really wants to have a voice. And she really wants to be able to respond articulately to others in her world. Um, She falls in love with somebody else in the novel. She also wants her father to take her seriously. Um, So she's invested in relationships. And um, so I I also read the novel as a very thoughtful uh, window into um, the difficult navigation of the kind of um, ethical and political stakes of trying to retain a voice in a compromised world. Um, And again, it's only if we do that, and if we kind of keep talking, that there's any chance that that compromised world might transform, because uh, by continuing the conversation, um, we we are tweaking the mutual attunements of that
0: world Mm -hmm. this kind of like togetherness in that shared language as well when we just use that to articulate our own voice that's fascinating um i guess then i want to uh look at the third chapter there which is one of my favorites <laughs> Your discussion of mine, of dinner party <laughs> conversations. Yeah. In that, uh, in Virginia Woolf's to the lighthouse and the waves in chapter three. Um, so by paying attention to the figure and practice of conversation, you pointed to us a vision, uh, here I quote on page 97 that draws together aesthetics, epistemology, and ethics at the heart of Woolf's work, end quote. Uh, I wonder whether you can talk a little bit more about this vision that, that, that is very related to the whole concept here about the conversational outlook.
1: Yes um yes it's one of my favorite chapters also and as i mentioned i wolf has been important to me since my undergraduate days um <clears throat> so wolf scholars have long known that wolf was interested in and kind of responsive to epistemology and and um, um the specifically the kind of epistemological skepticism that uh was um was very much the the talk of uh her bloomsbury group um partly through the figure of bertrand russell or through the, the the voice of bertrand russell the um philosopher and mathematician um and so uh so Russell uh, was partly um, writing and thinking a lot about, again, as I mentioned before, the kind of skeptical uh, question of of how much can we be certain that our senses are are giving us an accurate picture of the world? And Russell notes that... um, there's a kind of social problem if we can't be um, be confident in our sense perceptions. He says we want the same object for different people. Um, and uh, and he, Conjures this image of people gathered around a table, a dinner table, and he says, "We want the same cutlery, we want the same, you know, plates and all of this, um, for all of these people." But, uh, but, but we can't uh, just um, necessarily know that we have that same world. And then he develops a whole, a whole way of trying to get around this. Um, and I really recommend if, if readers are interested in learning more about Russell. Uh, in relation to the Bloomsbury group and Wolf, I would, you know, I can't recommend highly enough. And Banfield's pathbreaking book, The Phantom Table. Um But the thing that really interests me is that Wolf reproduces Russell's image of people gathered around a dinner table um, again and again in her work. And I argue that she conjures a very aesthetically charged mode of conversation that draws on Kantian aesthetics um, in order to propose a very unique alternative to the set of worries that Russell um, proposes. So, like the ordinary language philosopher um, that I described earlier in this conversation, Wolf doesn't try to dissuade us from any doubt about whether or not we can perceive the same world uh, with certainty, but she proposes that conversation offers something like a reprieve from any kind of anxiety. Uh, and the reason is because it is uh, it taps into certain aesthetic um, qualities. So, um, there are there are, there's a famous dinner scene toward the end of To the Lighthouse, and then a repeated dinner scene in The Waves, which itself is a conversationally constructed text, uh, six voices in constant interchange across a lifetime. And um, so into the lighthouse, there's this great moment. there's there's a lot uh, that I could say about this scene. I could go on for hours and hours and I'll try to be brief. Um, but there's a, a wonderful moment that encapsulates part of what I'm developing throughout the book, um, and especially in Wolf, when um, two characters, Mrs. Ramsey and Augustus Carmichael are both looking at this centerpiece bowl of fruit and the narrative voice says that was his way of looking different from hers, but looking together united them. And so, so this really captures part of the heart of the conversational outlook, this notion that we each have different ways of looking and different positions from which we're looking, but looking together unites us. And why does it unite us? Well, this is where Kant comes in, and this is where I think the waves helps uh, helps kind of flesh it out. Um, So in the waves, the key image uh, that I focus on um, arrives in a repeated set of scenes where the six main characters get together for dinner and they're talking, you know, they're making conversation. Um, and, and simultaneously they're making something more, uh, they're making a shared world. Um, and this shared world is partly encapsulated by, um, a flower at the center of the table, um, and one of the characters describes it as a many-sided flower or a six-sided flower. And, um, and there's a sense in which by each approaching the flower from their d- six different standpoints and, uh, and responding to it, um, they are somehow co-constructing the shared flower. Um, and so I know that it's, it's not for nothing that the image is a flower a uh, flower is this kind of paradigmatic object of beauty and it's it's uh also not for nothing that one of the characters describes what they're making not so much as a flower but as a dwelling place so we have this this simultaneous use of a kind of aesthetic responsiveness to beauty and uh an illusion that by responding together to beauty and in fact actually making the flower they don't just respond to it but they make it by looking together at it and talking um are simultaneously making a sense of dwelling together in a shared world um and i and i know that this is um there there are various registers in which wolf is um, kind of drawing on very kantian language not only in the the flower itself um but also in the notion that uh for for kant when we when we judge a flower, for example, to be beautiful. What we're doing, he says, is we are imagining that we speak with a universal voice and we impute that judgment to everyone. So I I wouldn't call the flower beautiful if I didn't think there was a strong chance that you would agree with me. <laughs> um, yeah, I would maybe just say, I like that flower. If, if all I'm prepared to say is that it's a personal opinion, I would just use that language. But if I use the language of beauty, of aesthetic judgment, i'm presupposing a kind of community a kind of shared response to the same flower um and so he says we 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 imagine that we speak with a universal voice and that is the voice of the census communis um <laughs> excuse me and Um, And then he he also says, you know, we can't just assume, though, that we are accurate in our first impression of the flower as beautiful. We have to test our imagination um, by uh, or test our judgment by imagining ourselves perceiving the same flower from a different standpoint. Um, And so you you kind of imaginatively send yourself uh, to keep with the image of the dinner table. I imagine myself sitting across the table uh, and looking at the same flower. Would I still call it a beautiful flower from there? Or what if I'm sitting to the right tonight and whatever? And it's through this imaginative kind of travel and testing of judgment that you can see, do I believe that I, I really am speaking with a universal voice when I call it beautiful? And so partly I know that there's a sense in which to call a flower beautiful is to always imagine it has many sides, it is always a kind of, to, to say that the flower is beautiful is to imagine it has at least six sides, it has infinite sides, it has as many sides as I can imagine myself inhabiting and looking at it from and um, and for Kant, there's simultaneously this kind of imaginative travel and also real conversation that you have with others that, that is how you come to know if you really do share a sensus communis, if you really are all responding to, to beauty, um, to the same flower, if the flower really does have all of these these sides and can elicit the same kind of attunement. And so uh, so I suggest that it's through uh, requiring this kind of imagination into all of these different positions that we gain a fuller sense of of the world as inhabited by, dwelled in by others, uh, as a communal space, as a space where we are, we we have a census communis with others, and so that's why it is the case for Kant that uh, to and for for certain traditions of tr- of interpreting Kant that to uh, judge something as beautiful is to always kind of presume community, to presume um, a, a dwelling place. And I argue that again, it's in these scenes of conversation where the characters are looking together in their different ways, and kind of testing the fact that they're looking together by making conversation, that they're constructing a dwelling place, partly by reaffirming the fact that they are responding um, already kind of in attunement with one another, and and this should sound a little bit like the kind of iterative relay that I mentioned at the beginning of our conversation, the sense that there's a kind of constant toggling between we have to already share something in order order to be in conversation but it's in conversation that we we reaffirm and we make the shared objects of the world the many-sided flower the many-sided novel um, and it's through this conversation this aesthetic experience that we um that we reach a a, a fragile a uh, temporary belief that we are we are living in common um in a dwelling place um so I, I hope that that i i feel like um even though this is my favorite chapter it's maybe the chapter that for precisely that reason, is the hardest for me to summarize. Um, but that's uh, that's sort of how again, I guess the the co- the question began with um, aesthetics, epistemology, and ethics. And so I guess I can circle back and just say so we have again this kind of um, epistemological doubt: can we know that we share the same objects? And Wolf proposes well. By making conversation, we make the shared objects. And that's how we come to know we share the same world. So it's through this aesthetic operation that we create the shared world. And that's the foundation for ethics, as well as we'll we'll see um, for politics as well.
0: Yeah, I guess that would be a good bridge for us to enter the later half of the book, because uh, you shift to the political concerns about the democratic speech and the shared reality in the next two chapters. So your chapter four exams, Salman Rushdie's The Satanic Verses in relation to Hannah Arendt's political thought. Uh, in what ways does the novel address the limitations of Arendt's treatment of racial prejudice and inequality?
1: Yes, it's a, it's a good question. Um, I probably stray a little bit in answering it because partly I am interested in making the case that I, for all of her flaws, especially her limitations about race, remains a really essential thinker for our, our current moment um, but but so Arendt was was um, famously or infamously bad on on talking about especially U.S race relations and civil rights um, And a big part of the the problem is rooted in she had this very dogmatic separation of spheres, um, especially in you see this in the human condition, one of her early works, which is where she describes the the public realm as uh, emerging through speech and action. Through, it's a space of freedom. It's a space of potential equality. Um, but let, you know, and this is this is key to the conversational outlook. Uh, the public realm for Ara only exists where, um, as she writes, men gather together in the manner of speech and action. Um, and similar to the many-sided substance or the many-sided flower that I was just discussing. Um, it is a a world that is constitutively kind of generated by the kind of sum total of uh, per- perspectives or outlooks that are brought together in public when people are talking. So that's why the public world ever exists for our end. It's only because people get together and talk about the same object, um, and it is very similar to the kind of many-sided flower. Um, but uh, she contrasts that with the private realm and the social realm, and um, and one of the things that she says, you know, the private realm is where hierarchy domination happens. It's the household. It's where enslavement happens. It's where uh, patriarchy, etc., um, happens. And um, you know, maybe it shouldn't, uh, but uh, that's not the role of politics to adjudicate what happens in the private realm, and it's not the role of politics to insist that. People socialize with people they don't want to socialize with. So the social realm is this kind of liminal in between space where you can have the same kind of prejudices and inequalities of the private realm, but sort of a little bit more public and not, not not the public in the kind of idealized political sense, but outside the household. And so like country clubs are social spaces and can be, uh, can be, um, foreclosed or restricted according to racial lines for R um, and schools, famously, infamously for Arendt, are also, um, she reads as social spaces, which I think is is just itself wrong. You know, schools are, as we, as we don't need to be reminded, in uh, 2024 United States, um, schools are very politically um, charged spaces. Um, but, but Arendt kind of proposes that, well, if, if parents don't want their kids to be friends and mix with kids, uh, based on other races, it's not for politics to, to say. So she was very critical of, um, some of the desegregation movements in the U.S. civil rights era. Um, so, so that's sort of the problem with Arendt. Uh, Rushdie, one of, there are a lot of ways that I think Rushdie's novel, the satanic verses helps us kind of. Resuscitate what's good about Arendt and rework it. Um, one of the things uh, that I'll say is that for those who don't know the novel, you know, the satanic verses is most associated with the fatwa and with the the, the plot line that offers a satirical representation of the founding of Islam. Um, but it's also about Thatcher era Britain. And a large part of the novel is set in London. Um, and it's set among a group of South Asian and uh, Black uh, Londoners uh, that the novel calls The Undercity. And so it's interested in, or it's it's set in the, the kind of cafes where they get together and the dance clubs and the streets. Um, and so I connect this to um, a strand of critical theory associated with theorizing counterpublics. So if you have that kind of public sphere that uh, Hannah Arendt describes as emerging in speech and action and that the liberal tradition um, uh, describes as a space where we should be making rational arguments and, and the kind of marketplace of ideas, this sort of Habermasian bourgeois public sphere. Um, A set of critical theorists are interested in the fact that people who were excluded from the dominant public sphere um, develop their own alternative spaces um, that are not just social spaces in a rent sense, they are actually um, doing very similar kind of through speech through action um elaborating their own interpretations of politics and um so i know that the novel uh does this that, that the novel represents um uh these counter public spaces among uh black and south asian um, londoners and um and Then I also note that the novel, one of the key things that happens in the novel is there's a a riot that breaks out due to over-policing of this community and of the counter public space. Um, And specifically uh, the riot Happens when this uh, alternative, this undercity, this counterpublic, um, is insisting on its right to participate in the larger public conversation and yet is rebuffed. Uh, so this potential moment of broadening the democratic conversation, you could say um, is is refused by state power, by the police and also by the, the media is is clearly aligned with the interests of the state and the police um, and is therefore misrepresenting the demands of this community for justice. Um, and so so it's in the kind of tight uh, policing of boundaries of what counts as public uh, and appropriate for public expression that violence transpires um, in the novel. And so one of the things that I that I argue is that on one hand, um, this is a, a sort of rebuke to anyone, whether it's Arendt or Habermas or anyone who sort of presupposes that there might be certain um, places that are appropriate for public discourse or certain uh, criteria or certain um, norms of speech or topics uh, that can appropriately be brought into the political realm—you um, know—it's by trying to police that that uh, that that the violence transpires. But on the other hand, I note that. By a Rensselaer philosophy, things become public anytime people talk about them in public, right? And so, so there's a, a contradiction in her own thought if she says, for instance, that, you know, racial segregation uh, is a, isn't an appropriately political topic uh, because it becomes political anytime somebody insists on talking about it in public. And so, so partly I use the novel to kind of tease out this this sense that Arendt's work uh, kind of knows more than she herself sometimes seems to know. Um, and then the other thing that I do in that chapter is I connect her early work that's interested in uh, the, the public space emerging in speech to her late turn to Kantian aesthetic thought as uh, for Arendt a model for the kind of thinking we need to do about politics and this makes sense. Although, as far as I know, aren't scholars haven't really noticed the conceptual continuity between her early work on the public sphere as just emerging wherever people gather and talk together and her late turn to Kant. Um, and I think it makes sense because if the public realm is generated essentially um, from scratch every time you get together and talk without pre-existing criteria for what you're going to talk about, it is an aesthetic project. It is uh, a project that uh, is created, uh, so that's one way in which it's aesthetic, Uh, but it's also aesthetic in the very Kantian sense um, in which, you know, another crucial part of of Kant's aesthetic theory is that you you know, to go back to the flower, I don't judge it to be beautiful because I have some prior criteria of beauty that I'm just applying. Uh, You can't deductively reason your way to the beauty of the flower. You just kind of know it and you know that you're Speaking with the universal voice, and you find the criteria as you go along. Um, and and there's something similar about the way that the public realm comes into being for art. You can't uh, know in advance what is the criteria. You find it as you talk with others in public. Um, and so Ara later, uh, she suggests that Kant's whole idea of how to judge, how to test our judgments that I was just talking about with Wolf um, is a really good model for thinking about how to judge political issues that emerge in this kind of public space. Um, and so she she uses the Kantian idea again of, of sending, she has this great phrase, I, I send the imagination visiting. So before I say that, you know, I, I imagine what the flower would look like from across the table it's the same idea except now instead of a flower we're talking about about policing or we're talking about uh taxation or something there's a political issue and i'm sending my imagination visiting which is not the same thing as empathizing i'm not trying to imagine what my neighbor thinks um it's actually i'm trying to detach from all of the kind of personal interests that might interfere with my capacity to really think about this um um, this is crucial in Kant's aesthetic theory. You don't just want to be kind of um, exchanging your own personal opinion for somebody else's opinion. What you want to do is reach this universalizable opinion. Um, and and Arendt says, you know, even if that's maybe an ideal, um, it's the ideal toward which we should strive. And so the way to try to judge politically is to to adopt the procedures that Kant recommends for aesthetic life. Um, And I I know that there are various resonances between this and what's going on in the Satanic Verses. Um, The novel's really interested in uh, one of its phrases is the differing estimations that the kind of dominant white British community um, is bringing to bear on the question of of policing and the estimations that this undercity, this counterpublic is bringing on the question of policing. And so the word estimations uh, is partly about judgment, right? It's partly about um, how do we judge the question of policing? And one of the things that I I propose in this reading is that um, I, I agree with Arendt that Kant's model is a good model for for how you know how to think about political issues we should strive to send our imagination visiting and and test our judgments and um and and um and constantly renew our judgments by you know you, the imagination should never stop visiting, um, and it should be ultimately a kind of world imagination that we're trying to get to, she says. Um, so that's the prescriptive uh, recommendation. But I think that Rishti helps us see something more descriptive, more like what actually happens in in the world if this is what we believe. Um, and so one of the implications is that if you find that you know that your imagination is not inclined to travel very far you know because you're prejudiced for example uh one outcome is that you can double down on polarization and on um and on alienation if i if i am not inclined to Try to imagine the position of somebody very different from me, and I just can't understand what they're saying about the political issue, then I might think we don't share the same world at all. Um, And so, so... Just as I think the Kantian model gives us something to aspire to, it also, I think, contains some warnings about exactly why political life is so challenging. Because if we really do believe that we are seeking a census communis in our political world um, and and we're, we're drawing short of being able to imagine certain positions, then we might just want to exclude those positions from our mental map of the, the world that matters and um and I argue that this is partly what, what goes on in the novel. The novel sort of reveals the utter breakdown of, of so-called conversation um, because of the, the difficulty of this. So it simultaneously kind of affirms this as an aspiration and then and then uh, posits that it's not possible in 1980s Britain. Um, and that's sort of the final connection I, I draw between Rishi and Ara is that um, Arendt talks about how uh, in order to kind of keep political life going, we have to be willing to basically believe in miracles. (laughs) Um, Because if you if you aren't willing to be utterly transformed by what you perceive um, and 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 the miraculous is one way to think about the perception of something that's utterly transforming of what you even thought was possible. Um, then you're not going to be able to respond to a changing political world and Rushdie's magical realism i think gives us formally a kind of analog to this sense that a certain willingness to suspend the principles of realism is required in order to even imagine the possibility of a better world a more inclusive world a different a a democrat a genuinely democratic world and um and it's you know there's something i think that that should be troubling about the recourse to magic or miracle if um when when uh you know it's it's troubling but i but i also i think that it's something that both of them usefully offer us because i do think we need to be willing to uh have our criteria transform constantly Mm. our sense of the possible has to be able to transform in conversation um if we're to to continue to kind of renew the world or welcome newness into the world Uh, but that's that's a tall order right
0: yes (laughs) Yeah, that's, uh, that's quite interesting there. Uh, I guess probably I want to explore more about this newest and also the magic realism, but I guess probably we should just go on with the next chapter, because uh moving actually moving from the public space, the public sphere, to the vir- uh, virtual space. So the last chapter analyzes Alice Smith's novel, Dear But for a Day, uh, as an allegory for digital communication. And mem circulation. What insights does the novel offer regarding social media's impact on politics, uh, and how does it relate to <laughs> coming back to the uh, very keyword here, conversation in your book?
1: Yes, thank you. Well. Um... So, so, the first thing I'll say is that there's, you know, there was a time, I think, I think that no longer are people quite as kind of idealistic about social media, but there was a time when people, uh, refer to social media as the conversation, you know, that, uh, that, that, that there's this kind of, uh, democratizing power of digital new media that everyone can participate in the conversation. So there was this, this use of the metaphor of conversation. And then, you know, uh, at least by 2016, there was an increasing realization that um, if if it is a particular kind of conversation, it's one whose criteria, to use the language of ordinary language philosophy, uh, might be undermining the possibility of democracy rather than expanding the possibility of democracy. Um, and this is where you know the possibility of fake news and all of this mm. this comes in uh, filter bubbles. Um, And, uh, so, so that's, I I think I set out originally thinking about this chapter as a way to, uh, just address head on the fact that, you know, On one hand, we've just seen in the previous chapter that the the public sphere of ideal liberal philosophy, and even even in its best cases, um, in a kind of more democratic theorizing is is very challenging to actually realize um, for all sorts of reasons of prejudice, is the digital world uh, inaugurating an era where maybe we could do a better job of having an inclusive democratic public sphere and you know the the answer seems to be not without a lot of of, of changes in the infrastructure, the platform infrastructure. Um, and and then I, I I suggest that this novel by Ali Smith, which was published in 2011, so right around the time that social media was really kind of kicking off culturally, um, seems to anticipate a lot of the ideas about the stakes of social media discourse that that really come into focus in ensuing years. Um, and so the plot of the novel, for for those who aren't familiar with it, is. This man named Miles uh, locks himself into the spare bedroom of a couple. There's another dinner party. The dinner parties are some kind of undercurrent in my in my book. Uh, so he's at a dinner party, he leaves the dinner party. It's an atrocious dinner party with a very bad conversation. Uh, he leaves it and locks himself in the spare bedroom of this, this mansion in Greenwich, London and doesn't leave, refuses to leave uh, and also never offers a clear explanation of what he's doing, why he's there. Uh, He stays there for months uh, and uh, over this this period of months that pass he becomes this global media sensation uh, and also a very literal uh, kind of um, communal sensation and encampment forms in the alleyway outside the house where he's sequestered himself. And um, this encampment, I argue, um, whether or not this was exactly what Ali Smith had in mind, it resembles a lot of the dynamics of the internet and of the digital world, um, including within Smith's own novel. So there there are a lot of the the novel is concerned about the rise of digital culture and the sort of way that we are increasingly mediating our lives through screens instead of responsiveness to the world itself. but that's sort of a sidebar. The The thing that really interests me um, and that allows me to kind of make the set of readings that I make in the novel, uh, of the novel, is that um, the community of fans of this man that shows up and starts camping outside the house, they turn him into a meme, um, you know, like a digital a digital icon that's circulating among their various communities, but they use him very differently. So um, there's a passage toward the end where we get a kind of bird's eye picture of the encampment And we learn, for instance, that there's one group of people camping there who has, um, who's decided that he's an emblem of Palestinian liberation, and another group of people who decide that he's an emblem of, you know, Israel's uh, kind of need to defend itself. Um, uh, And um, one of the things that's interesting is that the novel suggests that these two groups make no effort to persuade anyone that they're correct to say that Miles and his gesture has anything to do with their cause, right? So they're just holding up signs that say, you know, Miles for Israel's endangered children. But but again, there's no argument. There's There's no pointing to a reason. There's nothing about Miles or this act that's supposed to ratify that use. And so I suggest that that um, draws into view the criteria of, of so-called conversation online, where the thing that matters is that you're talking to people who basically already share your criteria. Um, and and this, uh, this opens up uh, and kind of intensifies the possibility of a gap between um, between the use of language online and something like a world that we might share with a wider community. Um, and so part of the work of the chapter is to bring together uh, Arendt's description of the public world, the common realm, as something that is under threat in various ways um, by if we if we aren't communicating um, uh, with a certain kind con- of willingness to respond to what one another says they see in the world. Um, So Arendt is very concerned about the the possibility that in conditions of totalitarianism, where people are too afraid to say what they see, or mass culture, where everyone's in conformity, um, the common world will go away. Um, And so I I bring together those concerns that Arendt articulates with an ordinary language philosophy way of talking about language games criteria for for communication and I argue that the novel helps us see how it is the case that the criteria for using memes or miles in this case are such that undermine the possibility of sharing the common world in a rent sense, um, and to some extent, you know, there was a moment when I was revising the chapter when I got sort of anxious that uh, that new media scholars basically had caught up with the novel. So originally, I was thinking, oh, the novel helps us helps us see how the criteria of, of online language games is undermining our shared reality, um, and the novel also there are various ways that it maybe helps us think about how it's it's because of platform economics and the attention economy and all of these things that have become phrases that are more familiar within critical media studies um, are, are why we're incentivized to use the criteria that undermine the common world. You know, you're going to get you're going to go viral or get more likes if you uh, use the means according to your your community. Um, and so I thought for for a while I sort of panicked and thought, oh no, the the the, the novel maybe had insights, but but everybody's caught up. I'm just rehashing what Shoshana Zuboff and Jodi Dean and these great theorists of digital culture have said. But then it, it occurred to me that one of the things that's really great about the novel is that Smith not only gives us this kind of allegory for meme communication, but she also juxtaposes it to literary interpretation. So the novel, you know, mo- in throughout most of the novel, this man is in this room, and, and we don't hear from him and everybody's using his gesture in different ways. At the end of the novel we learn he's left the room um, and returned to the common world. And the thing that prompts him to do that is an exchange of stories with a little girl, and uh, and in fact, um, and I won't I won't I won't belabor this. I'll just say, and you can read it and and, and see if you agree. Um, but but what happens in the exchange of stories is that the stories prompt him to send his imagination visiting in precisely the way that Hannah Arendt says uh, political thinking requires. He imagines his own situation from different standpoints uh, in a way that, that establishes a, an allegory between um, the effort of reading um, a story that happens to be about him, that the little girl writes, and uh, and the effort of imaginative projection that Arendt says um, helps us know we're, we're in a common world. And so on one hand, you have the novel warning or or helping us see how it is the case that one mode of using a signified like Miles can undermine the common world. Uh, There's this alternative that literary interpretation offers that brings us back to the common world. And in fact, it is um, kind of stunningly resonant with the the outlook on conversation that that is the project of the book to really articulate throughout where it's because of imagining all of the different standpoints in which the same text can be perceived and interpreted um, that we create we co-construct a common world and um, similarly for miles it's through having to imagine his own uh, story uh, from different standpoints that he's prompted to do because of an exchange of works of fiction um that he comes to kind of rediscover the possibility of a common world. Um, so it's it's it, if the novel um, offers something um, new to the discourse on social media it's partly just by by helping us see precisely what it is that literary criticism or aesthetic criticism aesthetic uh conversation about aesthetic objects how it might be different from meme exchange you know i'm not going to just Assert that a novel is about something without pointing to evidence from the novel that justifies me saying that. So the the meme use doesn't require that. You don't say Pepe the Frog represents right wing politics because he's green, right? It doesn't. He doesn't represent it because he's green. He rep- represents it because he represents it to people who believe he represents it. Whereas if I'm going to try to say again to the Houses is this great inquiry into marriage i'm going to point to scenes in the novel and it's it's that effort of drawing our attention back to the particularities of the shared object that right. gives us the capacity to make conversation at all in this world-making way as opposed to the world-destroying way of, of <laughs> the stage yeah.
0: This all circles back to literature, philosophy, through this idea of conversation. That's beautifully, beautifully said. Well, Aaron, um, we've taken up a lot of your time. I have actually one more question for you. Uh, what are you working on?
1: Yeah, thank you. Well, and it's been such a pleasure to talk with you, Ton. Thank you for these questions and for giving me the chance to share about this work. Um. So I, what I'm working on now is, is uh, I'm, I'm still interested in a lot of the same questions about uh, about language use and common worlds and democratic politics and responsiveness, um, but I'm increasingly interested in thinking about how um, how to update these concerns for some of the crises of the 21st century that necessarily outstrip uh, a kind of um, national framework of, of kind of democratic conversation as something that happens within a nation state or an anthropocentric framework of, of really only caring about responsiveness to human others. So to be a bit more specific, I'm thinking uh, with works of 21st century Anglophone fiction about how to kind of globalize and also expand beyond the human, a lot of these concerns. Um, And I have a a, a new, um, recently published work in contemporary literature about Ian McEwan's novel, Saturday, um, that I think will be a part of this this next project. Um, And so if people are interested, this is a novel about sort of uh, the challenge of judging the question of the invasion of Iraq, Uh, when, you know, it's just so complicated, this globalized uh, geopolitics, how can any one individual judge uh, is partly the kind of central question of the novel. And so, so that's, that's one of the questions that that this next project will take up is when you kind of globalize the question of judgment and, and, and things are just so much more complex than individuals are really equipped, but but we don't want to give up on democracy, so what do we do? Um, so I think that there are some works uh, by McEwen and others that help us think about that. Um, and then I'm also interested, and I think that there are some real connections between that and thinking about things like climate catastrophe and non-human others, animals. Um, I've... For a long time I have not eaten animals and I've been very ethically interested in animals and increasingly politically interested in the relationship between how we treat animals and, and how we think about our position in, in the wider ecology. Um, and uh, there are a lot of, of contemporary works of fiction that are also interested in these questions. But I think um, one of the things that I want to retain from this first project is um, I want to be no longer anthropocentric but I still want to be humanist in a way and this is where I think that ordinary language philosophy and Arendt and some of these these ways of thinking about human forms of life that really Uh, think that language is crucial to what we do as a species um, remain essential tools for addressing some of these, these questions of the 21st century. Um, So that's where I'm moving. We'll see, we'll see how it develops. I'm excited. uh, Yeah, I'm excited
0: to look look at it as well. Uh, Well, I hope, the listeners will have a good conversation just as as we had for today's show i want to thank you for being on the show today i really enjoyed it take care
1: thank you so much tong you too yeah. bye
0: bye